Chapter 92 Ruth was not, by nature, a confrontational person, and she agonized over her decision to confront her husband for over a week. It was, for her, and quite literally, the worst thing in the world. Something about demanding something from him, enforcing her will, made her feel as if she were hanging from a frayed rope over an endless chasm. And what was worse, the events at Munich, which she followed daily in the newspaper, were forcing her to act and act now. The endless excuses of procrastination were being overshadowed by the need to do something now, immediately before the time was lost. It's now or never, she kept thinking, and ruminated for a long time on the last word. Because the never has already been happening for twenty years. The never is not in the future, but was in the past. Every time she made a decision or fixed a time, she shied away. The confrontation and herself were like opposing magnets. The more effort she put into bringing them together, the more they seemed to fly apart. Her attitude wasn't helping. After enough time, even badly married couples can hide very little from each other. She was nervous and prone to outbursts, headaches, and speaking out of turn. It seemed impossible to confront him. She must confront him. It had a lot to do with Tom. Ruth knew in her heart that she would not see him unless she acted. Oh, she might see him at family functions, or even have the odd stiff lunch, but it would never be the same again, never be as it once was, when he was her secret, lovely heart. But it was more than that. It was about much more than Tom. I want to exist before I die, she thought. But Quentin was always busy, and Ruth didn't want to warn him of what was coming. If she went to him and said, I need to speak with you about something of great importance tomorrow at 7 p.m., he would be tipped off and all would be lost. He would be busy or distracted or would have time to think up some sort of counter-scheme. And, and he would need time to think. This was the worst part, the part that caused her to bite her nails to the bone. But I cannot give him time to think. It will be all over then. I must force him. I must force him. To do what? was her first thought. But that was quickly resolved by the newspaper. To oppose Munich, to change sides, to join Churchill and... and Gunther. This is what Ruth wanted. She wanted it for so many reasons. To impose her will for once. To have him listen and act upon her wishes. To do something brave. To swim against the social current. To make the deaths of her brothers and father mean something. To take a stand. To oppose Reginald and support Tom for once. And there was more. 
It was also about her own soul, her own mistakes. To redeem Ruth for the part she played in the two years leading up to the First World War, a public apology to her two greatest loves, Tom and Gunther. Ruth thought of going straight to the newspapers, but she recoiled from that. It would be easier in some way. Quentin would never have to know who had done it. He would think it was that horrible man, Uxbridge. But that would mean that whatever happened would quickly get out of control. The government would take over. Quentin might go to jail for the remainder of her life. Assuming there was no statute of limitations, was there? She couldn't inquire without tipping her hand. And it wasn't enough to eliminate a supporter of Munich. She had to reinforce those who opposed it. She had to force him to march from one camp to the other under the eyes of all opponents. Then she could respect him. Then she could sleep. It happened without warning. Ruth had been fretting at the problem for so long that when her mouth started speaking, it took some time for her brain to catch up. For a few dizzy moments, she recalled sprinting across a neat lawn when she was very little in hot pursuit of a much-loved rabbit. It was nighttime. She had been unable to sleep. Terror had so pervaded every one of her waking breaths that she felt like a glass statue filled with visible decomposition. It was becoming too horrible. She was sitting up in bed, unbearable, the tension, the terror. Her covers were thrown aside. She marched into Quentin's room without knocking. He was snoring, and she had a sudden vision of smashing a vase over his snorting, stupid, sleeping face. Quentin, she hissed. The last thing she wanted was for Catherine to come up and see this. Catherine would take her side and so seal her fate. Like with Tom. He did not stir. Ruth stood there in a complete rage. Those who have done wrong sleep like drunk dogs. Those about to do right have not slept in weeks. She walked around his bed and flicked on his bedside light. She sat. Quentin! He groaned and stirred. One eye opened, scanning, unfocused. Then both jerked wide. He sat up so hurriedly that he knocked his skull on the headboard. Good God, Ruth, he cried in alarm. What is it? I have to talk to you. Yes, uh, and about what? And why can't it wait? You have to change your mind about Munich. Why? What? Munich? A meeting tomorrow. What are you talking about? Quentin, it will be war. He scowled contemptuously. Ruth... My God, you're too old to still be seeing shadows under the bed. I'll worry about the next war. You just keep obsessing about the last one. She slapped him. It was a hard slap. Her arm was rigid. 
she saw her sweeping thin muscle. His head jerked. His lip curled. He struggled to get out of bed, but her thin weight kept his covers down. He kicked his legs away from her and got out on the far side. You stupid bitch, he snarled. I'm going to a hotel. His breath was coming short. Coming in here, yanking me out of a sound sleep, slapping my face. His fists curled. I have never hit a woman, but I am not opposed to it on principle. Ruth felt as if she had committed a mistake. The feeling overwhelmed her that she had failed before she had even begun. But then something almost miraculous happened. She got behind her anger. She supported her slap. It happened in a moment and gave her a voice she had not heard in thirty years. Quentin, you will change your position on Munich. He grunted, thrusting his thick legs into some trousers. This debate ended when you started slapping. You will do it for me, for Tom, for Reginald even, for England, for the future. You cannot continue to support a policy based entirely on the principle of stand and deliver. Evans, how my political career has been held back by a lack of midnight lectures on foreign policy from comatose housewives. He spat the last word. Ruth was shocked at his attitude, but was already behind her anger, so it did not escalate. You will not listen to reason? That's good coming from you, said Quentin, pulling on an undershirt. It never goes how we think it will, thought Ruth in amazement. Planning is pointless because we can only plan for ourselves. I never thought of him going to a hotel. Ah, well. Quentin, do you know a man named Uxbridge? He was struggling with his suspenders, his hands, face, body all froze. His eyes came up and Ruth flinched visibly. So here is his private hell, she thought in amazement. She recalled him moving through a crowd of well-dressed dinner guests at some fundraising event in Brighton. He was glossy, cheery, friendly, and looked as if he didn't have a care in the world. Her husband was wonderful at playing this part. She had occasionally fallen for it. But we can all be moral for strangers, she thought. It is so easy to impress those just passing through. But we can only be judged by those who remain. But here was what was underneath. The private volcano which fed, demanded his pleasant and chirruping little public forest. His ease, his geniality, his oily confidence. And he knew it was coming, this reckoning, thought Ruth. He knew it and always pretended otherwise. He had to pretend otherwise because he knew it was coming. Don't speak of that, hissed Quentin, his eyes narrow and predatory. I have met him. Why? Why would you meet him? Who is he? He's a senile old man by now. Everything he says is false. He, he came to see me first. The pieces of his story were 
already falling into place, Ruth saw, and Quentin was already in the process of believing them. He came to my office and threatened to blackmail me for a job. Yes, I, I knew him in the army, and I might have been prepared to help an old war friend, but not a blackmailer. I have my standards. Please don't tell me that he has taken you in. That indicates a singular lack of loyalty on your part, Ruth. Quentin sat on a little chair. <sighs> tell me what he has told you. I'm, I'm sorry for blowing up. I was startled. And I don't think I've ever... <laughs> that you've ever slapped me before? He smiled. And I think I would remember that. You have <laughs> quite a right hook. Most professional. I'm sorry. His eyes narrowed. What did he tell you? He told me nothing. He showed me a receipt for some grenades that you later claimed were missing. He said that you had turned them into sausages. Quentin laughed. Oh, that's quite a feat. That receipt is a forgery. Why would I do that? Even if you think I was capable of such a thing, why would I do it? I had money back then. If you've met this Uxbridge chap, you'd know firsthand that he's not the sort of fellow able to offer a bribe capable of interesting me. My brother was in that division. As soon as Ruth used the word brother, Quentin shuddered from head to toe. The chair creaked violently. Ruth knew that her husband was fighting against the urge to vomit. No. He whispered, his eyes wide, staring at the carpet. Then he shuddered again, but more delicately, and looked sideways up at Ruth. No, we can't be using that. That's too inhuman. I'll kill him if he's going to try using your loss to get to me. That's beyond monstrous. Someone with that kind of genius should be... He was fighting for us. Quentin, said Ruth softly, picking at a little tuft on the blanket. You could have confessed, but you kept it secret all these years, and now you're trying to set it right with Munich. But because all your actions are based on a lie, it will just make everything worse. You are so close to telling the truth working so hard for peace. You are almost a pacifist. But because you are lying, you are the worst warmonger on the planet. You will bring us all to ruin. You want me to confess? whispered Quentin. They both knew that the moment of confession, at least between them, had already passed. Ruth let it go by without a comment. No, Quentin, she said. She wanted to throw herself on the blanket and reach towards him, towards the awful icy gulf where his soul used to hang. But she steeled herself. She could not fill that gulf. It would just empty her. I want you to switch sides. You must join 
Churchill's camp. Speak out against Munich. It's the only way to stop what's happening to you, to, to us, to England, to, to the world. <sighs> the world, he snickered. Oh, my wife, my beloved, my Ruth. I'm not a pacifist. I don't give a shit about the goddamn Czechs. I'm just trying to keep us in vittles, as they say. <laughs> Would you come and live with me in a little cramped room? A room like Oxbridges? I don't think so. Material comfort is all I want. So many people died because of what you... It was war! He suddenly shouted, pounding a fist into his thigh. You think I went and killed them? Pulled the trigger? Am I that much of a warrior? Men died. Your, your brother won't be coming back to life, even if you destroy me from tip to toe. Let it all go, Ruth. The past is dead and buried. Look to the future. I am looking to the future, Quentin. And I am seeing more of the same. The past is not dead. Not for us. Certainly not for you. You have to tell the truth. But you're not asking me to tell the truth. You're asking me to lie. To change sides. Which is it to be? Ruth paused. She had never really thought of it as lying. I want you to change sides. You know what will happen if you don't. This will be published. Investigations will begin. I don't know how long the army keeps records, but I suspect it is a long, long time. You will be discredited, thrown in jail, perhaps. And you, demanded Quentin, what will you do with me in jail? And what will Reginald do? Oh, I know he's not your favorite, but try to find one little facet of your stony heart that feels for him. Tom has nothing to lose. He's got his annuity, but Reginald will lose his job, his career. But why? This is England, Ruth. The sins of the fathers are the futures of the sons. Ruth paused, then nodded slowly. That doesn't matter. I am resolved. Quentin gazed at her for a long time. She had found a kind of peace. He could see that. But he was not finished. Ruth, he said softly, let's forget the world for a moment. Forget Munich. What do you think will happen to us if you force this upon me. We shall still have to live under the same roof for another twenty years, perhaps. Will you be able to stand it? It is an important question. He suddenly burst into racking sobs, his chest raising and lowering convulsively. His wife's hand twitched towards him, he spoke in jerking sobs, every word thick with old, coagulated feeling. I might 
be carrying the secret. It's every other day, if not every day. And I have set myself against them. These endless fucking historical winds. I have, I have tried too hard to do so much good. But Ruth, I am trailed by ghosts in uniform. It was such a jigsaw puzzle back then at the beginning. I, I thought it could go together any number of ways. But it can't, Ruth, it can't. It's one way, just one way, or all your days burn. And I can only forget by f falling into other people, by becoming something else, a ghost like them. Oh, God, I didn't know it was so wrong. Quentin fell off his chair, onto his knees, racked with sobs. Ruth tried to stop herself, but she crawled over the rumpled bed, sank to the floor, wrapped her arms around her sobbing husband, and cradled his balding head in her old, old hands. Chapter 93 Churchill was an early riser, but usually spent the morning in bed after his bath, reading, writing, and dictating. He was a little annoyed when he heard the doorbell ring at seven o'clock. His valet came up the stairs and informed him that two young men had come to see him. When he came down, he scowled when he saw Tom sitting in his living room with another young man. Both men jumped up. "'Good morning, Mr. Churchill.' said Tom. This is Hart Collins, an old friend of mine. I see, said Churchill, shaking both their hands. And what can I do for you, young men, at this ungodly hour? Not that I owe you any favours, Mr. Spencer. Tom blushed. What? Why? Not that you should, but what are you doing back from Czechoslovakia? I didn't think I would be do any more good there. Really? Well, that is a fine sentiment. I imagine that everything should work thusly. "'Certainly if a man is tired of his duty, he should cast it aside.' "'Tom swallowed, then said, "'Hart works in the foreign office.' "'Mr. Churchill,' said Hart, rocking slightly on the balls of his feet, "'last night I heard something about a German plot to overthrow Hitler, "'if England and France stand up for Czechoslovakia.' "'A ripple.' ran through Churchill's pink and meaty frame. He seemed to sway back slightly, and both men had the impulse to leap forward to steady him. "'My God!' he cried. He took a step towards the sofa, then frowned and changed course for the bar. "'Scotch and soda,' he said. "'Mid morning, so not too strong.' Tom glanced at Hart and shrugged. We've been up all night, so it's not really morning, certainly. Churchill brought the drinks over. They all sat. Now, young man, said Churchill, glaring at heart, you do realize that I am not a member of the cabinet. Yes, sir, 
and as such, if you break confidence with Lord Halifax, your lawful master, you shall be breaking confidence with His Majesty's government in the most grievous manner. I do. And you are prepared to risk censure, the loss of your career, and possibly some jail time for this? My God, uh, of course. Good man. Churchill rubbed his hands together. My God, this is potent gossip. Have the French been informed? No. Churchill scowled. You are sure, absolutely sure. Hart paused. I, I do not know of any communication to the French, but that stands to reason that— Churchill lifted a commanding hand. Please, give me the facts, and I shall rely on my own considerable experience to supply the reasoning. For two straight hours, Churchill cross-examined Hart on every possible aspect of what he had seen and heard. It was an exhausting process. Tom watched it in fascination. Churchill's acute and precise mind seemed to fill the room like a heady, invisible gas. All interruptions were ignored. No food was brought. Tom was able to scrounge a little nutrition from a bowl of sliced lemons on the bar. Finally, Churchill seemed satisfied that he had gotten the whole story. He lay back in his dressing gown, absently scratching his thigh. "'Would you say,' asked Tom tentatively, "'that it is a question of proof?' "'What do you mean?' "'Well, if Hart could get some proof of—' "'No. Proof doesn't matter in this context. "'Anything we got would be illegal, "'and cause the public to level their guns at us, not the government. "'The question is, what to do?' "'Can you expose them?' asked Hart, his voice hoarse from answering questions. Somehow. Churchill turned his massive head towards the young man. Exposed them? In what manner? Say that the Germans have approached the government with this offer. The French should know at least. It might affect their calculations. Churchill snorted. It is unlikely that this information will substantially alter their resolve. But they should know it, said Tom. Exhaustion, scotch, and lemons were making him brave. Yes, murmured Churchill. They should know it. It would not be bloodless, but it might avert to us. But that means that Hart will go to jail. May? Why? I, I mean, I know why, but how? Everything always gets out, said Churchill. You're here, aren't you? What were you working on last night? A uh, memorandum comparing Gordisburg with what's being proposed at Munich at the moment? They'll trace when it was sent. You are probably the only employee there. Someone will remember. You will pay. I see. Hart looked at his fingers. <laughs> so soft. He had escaped manual labor for so long. He looked up at Churchill. I will take that risk. Churchill slapped his own thigh. Honorably spoken. Would it help I would take you up on your fine offer? But it won't? asked Tom. Hart sat back in his chair, passing a shaky hand across his forehead. Churchill paused. Well, I must now ask for your discretion, for this must stay here, as must your information, Hart. Both men nodded. Since 
oh, about March of this year. Since the first Czech crisis, I have not been working to avoid war. Churchill paused for a moment, then continued. The next war, more of a continuation of the last war than a new one, should be called the Unnecessary War, because no war in history has been more preventable. Until 1933, at least, it could have been averted without the firing of a single shot. By 1936, perhaps a few hundred dead and wounded in the Rhineland. But now, things have gone too far. I cannot. There is nothing that anyone can do to avoid a war between England, France, and Germany. So I am no longer working to avoid war, because that is impossible. You just have to thumb through Mein Kampf to see that. Then, then, what are you fighting for? Churchill's eyes turned feral all of a sudden. Why, for when war comes, to win it. Tom nodded slowly. Hart was staring at his hands again. Churchill grunted. Now, if I take this information to Parliament and expose the current administration, both they and I shall be discredited. They for concealing secrets, me for stealing them. They shall ask, How, Mr. Churchill, did you get this information? And they shall be quite right to ask. And if I say, A young man in the Foreign Office brought it to me, then they shall ask, Why, pray tell, did you listen to him, and not report him, and then reveal this highly confidential information in the most public arena this island possesses? And then, Mr. Spencer... When Hitler masses his armies and aeroplanes on the shores of France, who shall stand against him? Chamberlain? Halifax? Eden? None of them can lead, because they have all been compromised by appeasement. They shall explore possible peace terms with Herr Hitler, and this island shall fall, and the history of our race shall come to an abrupt and possibly irreversible end. By the end of his speech, Churchill's face was red. Tom stared, having no idea how anyone could stand against the passion of the old man. He was irresistible. So, said Hart glumly, we can do nothing. Churchill suddenly smiled. I have not said so. There are many ways of bringing an unpleasant truth out into the open. "'What are you thinking of?' Churchill's eyes twinkled. "'Come to the house tomorrow, and you shall see.'" Chapter 94 Sunday morning, Martin arose at dawn, as was his custom. After thirty years of preaching, he still felt excited and nervous to be speaking to a crowd. A small crowd, to be sure, but each soul was an infinity of influence. Klaus was up too, which was unusual. He was sitting at the kitchen table, turning some papers over in his hands. He was pale, drawn, thin. Nazism had not been good to him. Deep in his core, Martin knew, his eldest son was still an idealist. But there are ideals which feed and fatten, and others which starve and excavate. 
Martin was blind to his son's capacity to put ideology above life, health, happiness, and natural virtue because he was a priest and would be the last one to speak of such things. Klaus was beyond unhappy. Mere unhappiness is a transitory phase, a dip in the natural rhythm of living, no more out of place than the emptying of lungs before being filled by another breath. But Klaus was not in a natural place. He was no longer a rational animal, sleek in the pursuit of healthy prey, of advancement and achievement and all the mellow fruits of natural aging. He was a cancer, a neurotic, chained zoo animal, biting, feeding hands and its own haunches. He had crossed over to a land wherein there was no comfort. He had a map of paradise, and no thorns could bar his way. He was full of the most evil, horrible sentence that human beings are capable of. He believed in his core, as his father did, that the future would unfold as God willed it. Inshallah, God willing. And so, in his heart, he worshipped brute, naked power. Everything which came to be was God's will. Those who win have God behind them. Success is virtue. Might is right. What ethical standards can oppose the natural unfurling of God's infinite will? Nothing can occur which is not sanctioned by the greatest, most infinite goodness. Evil men act, and good men do not. Evil men rule, and good men submit. And the natural result of such awful thoughts is that good men feel more antipathy towards good men who resist than bad men who rule. Resistance is blasphemy. For Klaus, Inshallah, was not God, but rather the universal spirit. But it didn't matter. It could be God, or race, or class, or Malthusian doctrines, or Lebensraum. It didn't matter. Whatever was considered an inevitable pattern of history destroyed morality. If Germany was destined to expand, or capitalists destined to exploit, or the Aryan race destined to rule, opposing such inevitabilities was madness. Father, said Klaus, Sorbin and Chris are being called up. Conscripted. This came on Friday. The Nazis are going to take them. Martin sat down heavily. His hair was tangled, his chin spiked with tiny stubble. He smelled. He folded his hands and settled his chin on his knuckles. The Nazis, he murmured, they are not beyond these walls. They are not a they. They are an us. This bloodline is ending because of our errors. No, whispered Klaus, not ending. The girls will 
joined the National Socialist Women's League. Hitler wants them to have children. Martin smiled sadly. Yes, but our family will end, because they shall have to disown me, forget that I ever was, if they want to survive. Why? I miss your mother so much, he said simply. I am very surprised. Regret is the worst thing in the world. Well, not the worst, but close. I think she knew you left her. She knew nothing of the kind, snapped Martin. He laid his fingers on the back of his son's hand. I can't remember when life came to be like this, so empty, cold. I've chilled the whole world. Klaus was struck by a thought. He spoke very softly. What are you going to say today, father? Martin sighed. <sighs> I'm going to apologize to your mother, to Soren and Chris. Make amends with my maker. I have let a great plague into the land. You too, my son. We stood by and were merely curious at its passing. It's not enough. Refusing to fight is not enough. Klaus shivered. Oh, they were impossible to fight. That is a statement which, being spoken, becomes true. What if we had fought from the beginning, from the first signs? Martin smiled and caressed Klaus's hand. You are going to die, Klaus. It won't be long now. Eighteen months, perhaps two years. And Soren and Chris are going to die as well. The girls, I don't give them much of a chance. There'll be nowhere to hide. We didn't want to provoke the Nazis, but they just kept coming. Hitler once said about Czechoslovakia, I think, to Mussolini, whoever wants to join in the feast had better help in the kitchen. There's something very true in that. And we helped in the kitchen somehow. Society pays us to guard its most hazy borders, the borders between good and evil, where evil can be driven back by words alone. But we failed. We could not decide. We loved something other than our fellow men. We were without honor. We raised no alarms as evil slithered past us. We liked it for some reason. I don't know why. Ah, it doesn't matter. Because... I am no longer afraid of evil, or of myself, or death. And I miss your mother. Klaus held his father's hand in both hands. He felt as if Martin was sliding down a well, or into black quicksand, and not struggling. Don't do it, father. 
said Klaus, his throat congested. Oh, I couldn't bear it. But you are asking me to stay and kneel and be silent, replied Martin. I cannot do it. There are there are better ways to fight them. I know it. You, you're running away again. To speak now and, and be jailed would do nothing. But to save some people, some Jews, perhaps some gypsies, some writers, try to get them out, then you would be doing some good. That... That was never my job, said Martin sadly, staring at the scarred kitchen table. That is the course for men of action, revolutionaries, resistance fighters. The only men who can act now were those who we betrayed, who depended on us to protect them. I have let them all down. I cannot join them now. It would be dishonest. And besides, he said, raising his eyes to his son, would you join me on those ramparts, passing refugees over the wall of the Reich? Would you defy your black count? Can you recall all the pilots you have trained who will be sighting women and children down their bomb sites? No, we are both enmeshed in it from the beginning. Perhaps from before the beginning. Perhaps it began because of us. They sat in silence for a time, these two men who so loved the invisible and so became ghosts. They did not look at each other. Their hands were intertwined but motionless. Finally, Martin stood up. He cupped his son's pale face in his broad hands and kissed him on his forehead. His lips rested for many seconds. Klaus felt his own head grow heavier in the cupped hands of his father. Then Martin turned and left the house. Almost as soon as the door closed behind his father, Klaus was startled by the sound of the telephone. It was Count Orsky. Klaus, good morning. We need you early today. Can you come at eight instead of nine? I... What? What's the matter? Are you unwell? Just... Klaus felt tears gathering. He wilted them back. My, my father is very unhappy about my mother. Yes, it is a terrible... Shame. Perhaps an error. That we cannot argue with upstairs. There was a short pause. Why? What is he planning? Oh, oh nothing. Nothing. Count Orsky laughed. Klaus, you cannot lie to me. You were going to shoot me, remember? We could have no secrets. He's just depressed. Ah, oh, Sunday. That's the day for preaching, yes? He's... he's taking the day off. Not well. Well, put him on the line, then. 
We'll cheer him up, get him a furor bride with deep piety and big tits. Oh, no, he's uh, asleep. Ah, elusive little fucker, isn't he? Well, no matter, come at eight. I, I'm not feeling well either. So, my furor is prone to constipation. Still, he leads. Eight. Oh, oh, right. <laughs> Forward, into the future, comrade Klaus, laughed Count Orsky. Time is unidirectional. There was a click. Klaus hung up. In his mind's eye he saw his father striding a country lane, flames in his eyes. As he rounded a bend in the road, a real fire flamed before him, and he marched forward, singing and smiling, his Bible smoking and curling in his cracking hands. Klaus? asked his brother Soren, coming down the staircase. Father has gone? Yes, said Klaus, closing his eyes. And you and Chris are going as well. What do you mean? You are being conscripted. Soren came and sat down silently. There was no scraping of the chair, no rustling of clothes. But there is nothing else to do for now, he said. We cannot lead lives, really, independent of what is demanded, and, and Chris will be relieved. He's been very angry. Soren, do you think it was wrong of me to join the Nazis. Wrong? Soren frowned. Well, that's very individual. And it's the same question as, should I go upstairs and shoot myself because I'm being told to join the German army? I don't think that Czechoslovakia has done us so much wrong. Perhaps I shall shoot the innocent. I probably will. But to shoot myself, who is also an innocent, what would the point of that be? Ah, these things are too complicated for us. And now we have to do it all anyway, so what's the point of thinking about it? It's, it's like wondering which way to fall. Soren shrugged. Gravity decides for you. It's like morning mother. She made her choice. I can respect that. Don't, don't you miss her? Oh, terribly, bodily. What could we do? She was pious. We shall meet again. Klaus drummed his fingers on the table. I want to find Soren. Soren smiled. Then you should fight, Klaus. You should fight. Klaus ran all the way down the little path to his father's church. He saw no one along the way. The congregation was already there. They were murmuring. For the first time in living memory, his father was late. Klaus waited for an hour. His father never appeared. He fended off questions from the villagers. His heart was collapsing like a folding acidic bag. He could barely see. The world was scalding him. Every brick he saw was resting on regret. Klaus ran back to the house. He jumped into his car and drove to the aerodrome. He ran up to Count Orsky's house, ignoring those who shouted at him from the runway. Count Orsky received Klaus with obvious displeasure. He was in a meeting and had only a few minutes. "'My father has gone missing,' panted Klaus. "'Don't you love that line from Oscar Wilde? 
To lose one parent may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. You must take more care of your belongings. Was it because of what I said this morning? Count Orsky smiles. How could it be this morning your father was ill at home and fast asleep? Do you know anything of this? I know what you have told me. If your father was home and has gone missing, check the closets. Under the bed. He, he can't be far. Now, go and teach your pilots. It is rude to keep people waiting. Klaus leapt forward and grabbed Count Orsky's forearm. Something black and oily flashed over the older man's face. You cannot dismember my whole family without consequences, shouted Klaus. I will not stand for it. <laughs> Klaus felt himself flying through the air and was shocked at the eel-like strength in Count Orsky's arms. He fell hard against the stiff back of the sofa and sagged to the ground, doubled over and winded. Oh, so now you stand up, you vermin, snarled Count Orsky. Now you say to your little god, spare my family. Yet you cared nothing for the family soon to be bombed by the men you were training. <laughs> Here, I shall resurrect your father if you recall all your pilots. But no, you, you have given us more than 400 pilots. They shall fly two missions a day over Czechoslovakia if we do not achieve our aims at Munich tomorrow. Over Poland, over Romania, France, England, Russia, North Africa, everywhere we choose to send them. And don't tell me that you didn't know it was going to happen. We have never lied! The Count's voice rose. Never! And now you come to me and grab my arm and say that families must be saved. He pulled the revolver out of a holster and stood over Klaus's wheezing frame, waving it. Ah, oh, God! I should shoot you now to spare you the consequences of your actions. If I had any pity, I would. <laughs> oh, oh, do you know how easy you were to corrupt do you know what evil you have unleashed on the world? I'm not talking about the pilots. <laughs> and now the death you have bred so lovingly has returned. And now you whine and complain. Oh, God! You make my skin fucking crawl! Oh, I should shoot you. I should... Oh, God, give me the strength! Klaus crawled one or two feet along the polished wood of the floor. He was a compressed ball of utter desolation. He imagined that his father and mother were not waiting for him, just lying in ditches with surprised and disappointed looks frozen on their bloodless faces. And he wanted it. He wanted it so much non-existence. His fingers twitched. If he had been able to grab the gun from Count Orsky, he would have blown his own head off with a giddy laugh. But the Count kept dancing over him, just out of reach. I mean, he said, you and your father don't even worship the same god. You just worship the future. Whoever wins! Ah, he died for his beliefs like his demigod. Can you live for yours? Can you? 
Are you going to turn back now? What would be the point? Klaus, Klaus, please. Where would your father have fit in? And did you even want him to live? Would you have sacrificed your life for his? You always complained about him. You fought with him all the time. And he is with your mother. He got the martyrdom he wanted. Who was the right to complain? If it were not preordained, would not the world spirit have intervened? And why did you tell me that your father had turned rancid? You as much as told me, the local Nazi leader who had ordered the death of your mother, that your father was going to preach against us. <laughs> you lied to me. You sided with him. Oh, God, you hypocrites. You tell me, kill my father. It is done. And then you upbraid me? Why? Why can you not stomach the strength of your hatred? <sighs> it's pure nonsense. You wanted him dead. The moment you turned to the world spirit, you signed his death warrant. The moment you told the world that might makes right, you killed your parents. Klaus writhed, gasping. Might does not make right. Count Orsky laughed. <laughs> ah, could we have won without what you call the world spirit? Was that not what tortured your father? How could we have risen without providence lifting us up? Whoever wins is right. That is what you told the world. That was the bird's song that called us vultures down from the trees. Might does not make right, but we thank you for the camouflage. Might <laughs> does not make right. It is even better than that, even more wonderful. Might does not make right. Might makes right inconsequential. You give us guns and then mutter and doubt over words as we stride the world clad in the endless armor of your language. Know the truth, Klaus Heppner. We killed your father, you and I. We had to, because we are your children. Count Orsky exhaled mightily. He took a shaky step backwards. He touched his groin. Oh, now look, you've gone and got me all excited. Klaus felt as if he had been falling forever through an endless dark. Klaus suddenly reached the bottom and became blackness. I want to fight, he said in a wholly new voice. Count Orsky left his groin alone for a moment and cocked his head like a little bird. What? Klaus sat up, rubbing his head. He no longer felt the need to blink. I want to fight. No more training. I just want sky and guns. We'll shoot you if you do not train. Klaus gazed up, smiling. 
so shoot me. Count Orsky sighed in pure, sensual appreciation. Ah, ladies and gentlemen, he has arrived. Chapter 95 Ever since he had moved to London, Tom had occasionally come to watch parliamentary debates. He had seen some scintillating performances, but nothing quite like this. Churchill's task was very, very delicate. He wanted the government to admit that it had been approached by the German military with an offer of a coup in exchange for a firm stand for the preservation of Czechoslovakia. However, he could only hint at such an approach. To state it openly would discredit him. But Churchill remained optimistic. He had, as he said, spent the last decade in the political wilderness without a party, and had grown rather fond of the role of professional gadfly. And rarely in the history of Parliament had self-interest and morality coincided so deeply. In fact, he had said as they all drove up to London together in Tom's car, if, given this new information, the current administration chooses not to support Czechoslovakia in her extremity, then I confess I am at a loss as to divine their motives. It could be, Hart said, that they still believe that appeasement will avert war. You are too charitable, young man. It is no virtue. They have German generals telling them directly that if they pursue appeasement in the matter of Czechoslovakian independence, all Europe will be plunged into the nightmare of general war. I don't see how it could be any more clear than that. No, I am afraid that it is one of the oldest sins. Vanity. They cannot change a course they have argued for since the early thirties. Hart seemed undaunted, which Tom thought very brave. They could think that we shall be in a better position to fight Germany in another year or two. That is true. I have thought long and hard on that matter. I have only three objections. The first is that if they plan to fight Herr Hitler, that they should be talking to the Russians, because Germany cannot be effectively opposed without a two-front war. And if Czechoslovakia falls, Russia is the only remaining power in the East. God forbid Herr Ribbentrop gets to them first. But the current administration is not talking to Russia. Second, if they thought we should be in a better position to fight Germany in another year or two, then they should be doing all in their power to ensure that such will be the case. They should be unrestrained on armament spending, yet they are not. And third, if they were bent on opposing Germany next year, or in 1940, then they should be mending fences with France, which is not being done. No, my young friends, they are muddling all of us into a general war. This may be occurring with the best of intentions, but the best of intentions will do nothing to reduce the resulting slaughter. This last speech had silenced Hart and turned Tom a rather nasty shade of green. Churchill had grinned at them wolfishly. But don't fret yourselves into oblivion. Many a dictator has fallen before through the simple error of underestimating the spine of our island. So now, as the first parliamentary debate over Munich rose to a climax, Churchill made the following speech. The question before us remains quite a simple one. 
A fledgling democracy is being threatened and bullied by a far more powerful dictatorship. It seems to me that the attitude in this house has become something quite extraordinary. Were I to wander into this house from some foreign land and know nothing of the events, I would be utterly led to believe that poor defenceless Germany was being bullied by big mean Czechoslovakia, for we have developed a strong tendency to blame President Venice for refusing to submit to indignities which we would never even contemplate for our own land. If we were asked by Hitler to cede Dorset, or build a bridge across the channel for the easier conveyance of his troops and tanks, we should spit in his face and oil our rifles. Yet we counsel our sworn ally to submit to him. And history does not tend to be kind to false counsellors. All our deceitful and hypocritical words will return to haunt us. The other aspect of our dealings with Czechoslovakia is that we have led them down a path which has done them nothing but harm, and they have followed us only because we promised to do them good. There is no doubt in my mind that had we been clear with Czechoslovakia from the beginning, they could have secured better terms with Herr Hitler than the terms we are now forcing upon them. We are like a lawyer who has rejected a minor plea bargain on behalf of his client, and now presses them to take a much heavier sentence. Again, this shall not bode well for us, for the honour of this land, or the health of its inhabitants. All British citizens know the dark deeds of Richard III, because history has a long memory for betrayal from on high. That having been said, I wish to pose a question to Lord Halifax. We all know that the dramatic debate in this house of a few days past was cut short by Alec Douglas handing the Prime Minister a note indicating that Herr Hitler had agreed to the current conference at Munich, wherein the fate of Czechoslovakia is being decided even as we speak. What I wish to know is whether His Majesty's government has received any other last-minute communications from the German government. Lord Halifax stood. Is my honourable colleague's question whether or not we have received any communications from the German government in the last few days? Churchill scowled. This is neither my question nor my intention. Given that we stand on the precipice of the most calamitous war that can be imagined, I wish to ask if there is any additional information that this house, the British public as a whole, as well as our allies on the continent, might find useful to have in their possession. Does the Honourable Independent Member opposite have anything in particular in mind? This house, said Churchill darkly, will please note that my Honourable colleague is refusing to answer the question plainly. Perhaps the question remains obscure to him. The question is not obscure, Mr. Speaker, replied Halifax calmly. The Honourable Member opposite, however, is. Does he refer to some specific communication, or is he trolling for some suspected piece of information? Because I am at a loss as to know how he imagines that I am kept abreast of every piece of paper that flies between our two countries, especially at such a crucial juncture. Then, Mr. Speaker, let me put my question as clearly as possible. Churchill paused, shuffling slowly through his notes. Various groans rippled through the house. This was an old trick. 
Churchill always committed his speeches and questions to memory, but paused to flummox his opponents. Finally, Churchill raised his head. Does my honourable colleague wish to inform this House of any substantial changes in attitudes or communications from any segment of German society to His Majesty's government, the knowledge of which might benefit either this House, the English people, or any of our allies? There was a pause. Little sighs spotted the House as everyone drew in their breath. It was clear to every man in the house that Churchill was fishing for something. It was also clear from Lord Halifax's expression that Churchill was not casting his line into a lifeless lake. At that moment, everyone realized that the government had received extraordinary news from somewhere in Germany, and seeing the slow compression of Halifax's lips, they knew that they would not hear what it was for many, many years to come. There are no communications, said Lord Halifax eventually, and a little awkwardly, that we are prepared to talk about at this time. There was a long pause. Lord Halifax sat down. Churchill did not. The house was perfectly still. Then, he said, after a minute or two, I fear that the fate of Czechoslovakia is sealed. Then he sat down, lowered his eyes, and did not speak for the remainder of the session. The afternoon held one other surprise, however. Tom and Hart were about to leave when Quentin stood up, the speaker recognized the honorable member from Hillington. Tom was quite surprised at his stepfather's tone. It was dull, lifeless. He had admired very few of Quentin's thoughts and fewer still of his actions, but he had always held a regretful respect for his abilities as a public speaker. He had a decent amount of passion, could be acerbic and funny with an insult, always just within the bounds of parliamentary protocol, and was a master of staggeringly effective closing remarks. But this afternoon he was without fire, he was bereft of metaphor, he spoke like a somnambulist. For some reason this excited Tom terribly, and he leaned forward almost over the front of the overcrowded spectator's gallery. The hand of mother, he thought, almost afraid to breathe. Mr. Speaker, said Quentin, it has come to my attention that I have been remiss in my duties towards Czechoslovakia. While I formally argued that allowing the reunification of all German-speaking peoples was the only way to diffuse tensions in Central Europe, I now believe that I was in error. While I realize that today's debate is in no ways a debate, and that I shall do nothing to explicitly alter any policy of His Majesty's government, I still wish to stress that I have changed my mind about Czechoslovakia, 
and that I now support standing up to Herr Hitler on the matter of the incorporation of the Sudetenland by the Reich. Quentin stopped, staring at no one into the middle distance. The house was confused. Was he going to go on? If so, why was he pausing for so long? If not, why start speaking in the first place? Why publicly change your mind so unconvincingly? The house generally enjoyed the heady screeching of a position being suddenly reversed, but nothing like this had ever happened before. These alpha males did not change course, unless under the greatest pressure either of external concerns or internal conscience. They didn't just discard their former opinions with an indifferent shrug. Finally, the speaker said, Well, thank you for your comments, Mr. Spencer. The house turned to other business, and Quentin's strange confession faded into odd oblivion. It was two weeks before it resurfaced. Chapter 96 House of Commons October 3rd, 1938 Duff Cooper I have always been a student of foreign politics. I have served ten years in the foreign office, and I have studied the history of this and of other countries, and I have always believed that one of the most important principles in foreign policy and the conduct of foreign policy should be to make your policy plain to other countries, to let them know where you stand and what, in certain circumstances, you are prepared to do. I believe that the great defect in our foreign policy during recent months and recent weeks has been that we have failed to do so. During the last four weeks, we have been drifting day by day nearer into war with Germany, and we have never said until the last moment, and then in most uncertain terms, that we were prepared to fight. We knew that information to the opposite effect was being poured into the ears of the head of the German state. He had been assured, reassured, and fortified in the opinion that in no case would Great Britain fight. I had urged, after the rape of Austria, that Great Britain should make a firm declaration of what her foreign policy was. And then, and later, I was met with this, that the people of this country are not prepared to fight for Czechoslovakia. I besought my colleagues not to see this problem always in terms of Czechoslovakia, not to review it always from the difficult strategic position of that small country, but rather say to themselves, a moment may come when, owing to the invasion of Czechoslovakia, a European war will begin, and when that moment comes, we must take part in that war, we cannot keep out of it, and there is no doubt upon which side we shall fight. Let the world know that, and it will give those who are prepared to disturb the peace reason to hold their hand. It is perfectly true that after the assault on Austria, the Prime Minister made a speech in this house, an excellent speech, with every word of which I was in complete agreement, and what he said then was repeated and supported by the Chancellor of the Exchequer at Lenark. It was, however a guarded statement. It was a statement to the effect that if there were such a war, it would be unwise for anybody 
to count upon the possibility of our staying out. That is not the language which the dictators understand. Together with new methods and a new morality, they have introduced also a new vocabulary into Europe. They have discarded the old diplomatic methods of correspondence. I had hoped that it might be possible to make a statement to Herr Hitler before he made his speech at Nuremberg. On all sides we were being urged to do so, by people in this country, by members in this house, by leaders of the opposition, by the press, by the heads of foreign states, even by Germans who were supporters of the regime and did not wish to see it plunged into a war which might destroy it. But we were always told that on no account must we irritate Herr Hitler. It was particularly dangerous to irritate him before he made a public speech, because if he were so irritated, he might say some terrible things from which afterwards there would be no retreat. It seems to me that Herr Hitler never makes a speech save under the influence of considerable irritation, and the addition of one more irritant would not, I should have thought, have made a great difference, whereas the communication of a solemn fact would have produced a sobering effect. After the chance of Nuremberg was missed, I had hoped that the Prime Minister, at his first interview with Herr Hitler at Berchtesgaden, would make the position plain, but he did not do so. Again, at Godesburg, I had hoped that that statement would be made in unequivocal language. Again, I was disappointed. Hitler had another speech to make in Berlin. Again, an opportunity occurred of telling him exactly where we stood before he made that speech, but again the opportunity was missed, and it was only after the speech that he was informed. Then came the last appeal from the Prime Minister on Wednesday morning. For the first time, from the beginning to the end of the four weeks of negotiations, Herr Hitler was prepared to yield an inch, an L perhaps, but to yield some measure to the representations of Great Britain. But I would remind the House that the message from the Prime Minister was not the first news that he had received that morning. At dawn, he had learned of the mobilization of the British fleet. It is impossible to know what are the motives of men, and we shall probably never be satisfied as to which of these two new sources of inspiration moved him most when he agreed to go to Munich. But we do know that never before had he given in, and that then he did. I had been urging the mobilization of the fleet for many days. I had thought that this was the kind of language which would be easier for Herr Hitler to understand than the guarded language of diplomacy or the conditional clauses of the civil service. I had urged that something in that direction might be done at the end of August and before the Prime Minister went to Berchtesgaden. I had suggested that it should accompany the mission of Sir Horace Wilson. I remember the Prime Minister stating it was the one thing that would ruin the mission. And I said, it was the one thing that would lead it to success. That is the deep difference between the Prime Minister and myself throughout these days. The Prime Minister has believed in addressing Herr Hitler through the language of sweet reasonableness. I have believed that he was more open to the language of the mailed fist. The Prime Minister has confidence in the goodwill and in the word of Herr Hitler, although when Herr Hitler broke the Treaty of Versailles, he undertook to keep the Treaty of Locarno, and when he broke the Treaty of Locarno, he undertook not to interfere further, or to have further territorial aims in Europe. 
When he entered Austria by force, he authorized his henchmen to give an authoritative assurance that he would not interfere with Czechoslovakia. That was less than six months ago. Still, the Prime Minister believes that he can rely upon the good faith of Hitler. He believes that Hitler is interested only in Germany, as the Prime Minister was assured. The Prime Minister may be right. I can assure you, Mr. Speaker, with the deepest sincerity, that I hope and pray that he is right. But I cannot believe what he believes. I wish I could. I remember when we were discussing the Godesberg ultimatum, that I said that if I were a party to persuading or even suggesting to the Czechoslovak government that they should accept that ultimatum, I should never be able to hold up my head again. I have ruined, perhaps, my political career. But that is a little matter. I have retained something which is to me of great value. I can still walk about the world with my head erect. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain In my view, the strongest force of all, one which grew and took fresh shapes and forms every day, was the force not of any one individual, but was that unmistakable sense of unanimity among the peoples of the world that war somehow must be averted. The peoples of the British Empire were at one with those of Germany, of France, and of Italy, and their anxiety, their intense desire for peace, pervaded the whole atmosphere of the conference, and I believe that that, and not threats, made possible the concessions that were made. Ever since I assumed my present office, my main purpose has been to work for the pacification of Europe, for the removal of those suspicions and those animosities which have so long poisoned the air. The path which leads to appeasement is long and bristles with obstacles. The question of Czechoslovakia is the latest and perhaps the most dangerous. Now that we have got past it, I feel that it may be possible to make further progress along the road to sanity. My right honourable friend, Duff Cooper, has alluded in somewhat bitter terms to my conversation last Friday morning with Herr Hitler. I do not know why... That conversation should give rise to suspicion, still less to criticism. I entered into no pact. I made no new commitments. There is no secret understanding. Our conversation was hostile to no other nation. The objects of that conversation, for which I asked, was to try and extend a little further the personal contact which I had established with Herr Hitler, and which I believe to be essential in modern diplomacy. We had a friendly and entirely non-committal conversation, carried on, on my part, largely with a view to seeing whether there could be points in common between the head of a democratic government and the ruler of a totalitarian state. We see the result in the declaration which has been published, in which my right honourable friend finds so much ground for suspicion. I believe there are many who will feel with me that such a declaration, signed by the German Chancellor and myself, is something more than a pious expression of opinion. In our relations with other countries, everything depends upon there being sincerity and goodwill on both sides. I believe that there is sincerity and goodwill on both sides in this declaration. That is why, to me, its significance goes far beyond its actual words. If there is one lesson which we should learn from the events of these last weeks, it is this.
that lasting peace is not to be obtained by sitting still and waiting for it to come. It requires active, positive efforts to achieve it. No doubt, I shall have plenty of critics who will say that I am guilty of facile optimism and that I should disbelieve every word that is uttered by rulers of other great states in Europe. I am too much of a realist to believe that we are going to achieve our paradise in a day. We have only laid the foundations of peace. The superstructure is not even begun. While we must renew our determination to fill up the deficiencies that yet remain in our armaments and in our defensive precautions, so that we may be ready to defend ourselves and make our diplomacy effective... Interruption. Yes, I am a realist. Nevertheless, I say, with an equal sense of reality, that I do see fresh opportunities of approaching this subject of disarmament opening up before us, and I believe that they are at least as hopeful today as they have been at any previous time. It is to such tasks, the winning back of confidence, the gradual removal of hostility between nations until they feel that they can safely discard their weapons, one by one, that I would wish to devote what energy and time may be left to me before I hand over my office to younger men. Clement Attlee We all feel relief that war has not come this time. Every one of us has been passing through days of anxiety. We cannot, however, feel that peace has been established, but that we have nothing but an armistice in a state of war. We have been unable to go in for carefree rejoicing. We have felt that we are in the midst of a tragedy. We have felt humiliation. This has not been a victory for reason and humanity. It has been a victory for brute force. At every stage of the proceedings, there have been time limits laid down by the owner and ruler of armed force. These terms have not been terms negotiated, but they have been terms laid down as ultimata. We have seen today a gallant, civilized, and democratic people betrayed and handed over to a ruthless despotism. We have seen something more. We have seen the cause of democracy, which is in our view the cause of civilization and humanity, receive a terrible defeat. I think that in the mind of every thoughtful person in this country, when he heard that this settlement had been arrived at at Munich, there was a conflict. On the one hand, there was enormous relief that war had been averted, at all events for the time being. On the other, there was a sense of humiliation and foreboding for the future. The events of these last few days constitute one of the greatest diplomatic defeats that this country and France have ever sustained. There can be no doubt that this is a tremendous victory for Herr Hitler. Without firing a shot, by the mere display of military force, he has achieved a dominating position in Europe which Germany failed to win after four years of war. He has overturned the balance of power in Europe. He has destroyed the last fortress of democracy in Eastern Europe, which stood in the way of his ambition. He has opened his way to the food, the oil, and the resources which he requires in order to consolidate his military power, and he has successfully defeated and reduced to impotence the forces that might have stood against the rule of violence. The Prime Minister has given us an account of his actions, 
Everybody recognizes the great exertions he has made in the cause of peace. When the captain of a ship, by disregarding all rules of navigation, has gone right off his course and run the ship into great danger, watchers from the shore, naturally impressed with the captain's frantic efforts to try and save something from the shipwreck, cheer him when he comes ashore and even want to give him a testimonial. But there follows an inquiry, an inquest on the victims, and the question will be asked how the vessel got so far off its course, how and why it was so hazarded. All the faults of seamanship and errors of judgment must be brought to light, and no amount of devotion at the eleventh hour will save that captain from the verdict that he has hazarded his ship through bad seamanship. Parliament is the grand inquest of the British nation, and it is our duty to inquire not alone into the actions of the Prime Minister during the last few days or the last few weeks, but into the whole course of policy which has brought this country into such great danger and such great anxiety. I want to turn now to the cause of the crisis which we have undergone. The cause was not the existence of minorities in Czechoslovakia. It was not that the position of the Sudeten Germans has become intolerable. It was not the wonderful principle of self-determination. It was because Herr Hitler had decided that the time was ripe for another step forward in his design to dominate Europe. I think it is necessary to be clear on this, because the Prime Minister seems to me to be laying a great deal too much stress on the anxiety of Herr Hitler for his fellow Germans in Czechoslovakia. I have no doubt that it has been so, but it did not become intense until about two years ago. It was quite a minor matter, and I fear that the Prime Minister is deceived if he thinks that the cause of this trouble has been the woes of the Sudeten Germans. I say that the question of the Sudeten Germans has been used as a counter to the game of politics, and in other conditions Herr Hitler might just as well have used the people of Memel, the people of South Denmark, the people in the Trentino, or the Germans in South Tyrol. The history of the last seven years is the background of this crisis. And the first point I must make to the government is this. This crisis did not come unexpectedly. It was obvious to any intelligent student of foreign affairs that this attack would come. The immediate signal was given by the Prime Minister himself on 7th March of this year, when he said, What country in Europe today, if threatened by a larger power, can rely upon the League for protection? None. It was at once an invitation to Herr Hitler and a confession of the failure of the government. The invitation was accepted a few days later by the Anschluss in Austria. Then, our government and the French government could have faced the consequences. They could have told Czechoslovakia, We cannot any longer defend you. You had better now make the best terms you can with Germany, enter her political orbit, and give her anything to escape before the wrath comes upon you. But they did nothing of the sort. Czechoslovakia continued under the supposed shelter of these treaties. True, it was urged that something should be done for the Sudeten Germans, but there was no attempt made to take early steps to prevent this aggression. I heard a suggestion from the benches opposite. What about the USSR? Throughout the whole of these proceedings, the USSR has stood by its pledges and its declarations, and there has been some pretty hard lying about it, too. There have been lies told, and people knew they were lies, about alleged conversations between M. Litvinov and the French foreign minister. At no time has there been any difficulty in knowing where the USSR stood. At no time 
Has there been any consultation? I am aware that the Prime Minister may say that we were not the prime factor in this problem, and that we were only concerned after France had been brought into it. But we have had very close collaboration with France, and in the order of commitment the USSR comes before this country. And it has been a very great weakness that throughout there has been this cold shouldering of the USSR. When the national government overthrew the whole policy of collective security and abandoned it and the League, we told this House over and over again that we were entering on a very dangerous course. We realized that we were back in 1914 with all its dangers, and we knew that sooner or later a challenge would come to this country, and that is what has happened. The real pith of it is that having decided to leave the League system which we practiced and which we were believed, and to embark on a policy of alliances and power politics, instead of strengthening the people whose natural interests were with ours, we have had nothing but constant flirtations with this and that dictator. The Prime Minister has been the dupe of the dictators, and I say that today we are in a dangerous position. Sir Samuel Hoare, Secretary of State for the Home Department. A week ago, we were on the verge of a terrible abyss. The Honourable Member for Bishop Auckland, Mr. Dalton, who has just sat down, seemed to have forgotten the position in which we were then placed. The speech that he has just made seemed to take little account of the fact that a few days ago we were within a hair's breadth of the greatest catastrophe that the world has ever seen. Did we shrink from it in fear, or did we feel that there was some hope still of finding a path round it to more solid ground. I am fully aware that there are some honourable members and some people in the country who believe that no peace is possible in Europe as long as the dictatorships exist, who hold, quite sincerely, the view, I think the honourable gentleman who was just sat down does, that as long as the dictatorships exist, war is inevitable, and that it may be better to have war now, when we have an issue that may be supposed to appeal to the whole world, rather than put it off to some future date, when our position may be more difficult and dangerous. The conclusion of such a view is to me so appalling that I could not accept it if I thought there was still some glimmer of hope that the catastrophe might yet be averted. What is more important, the Prime Minister had that settled conviction— it was on that account that he made his superhuman efforts, at great risk to himself, at great risk to the government of which he is a member, but these things do not count in moments of this gravity, to take upon himself the responsibility of trying at the last moment to prevent this catastrophe coming upon us. The Prime Minister acted not alone as the head of the government of which I am a member. He acted rather as the spokesman of the millions of men and women from one end of the world to the other, who were determined that we should still try to keep a controlling hand upon the course of events and avoid an appalling calamity that would undoubtedly have ended in the extinction of civilization as we have known it. I claim that, having undertaken the responsibility of mediation, it would have been courting certain failure if, at one and the same time, when he was attempting to mediate, he engaged himself upon a policy of threats and ultimatums. That is the answer to the main charge of my right honourable friend, the member for St. George's, Westminster, Mr. Cooper. I claim that it would have met certain failure if at the very time 
when we were attempting to mediate and to obtain a peaceful settlement, we had accepted the advice of those who said, you must face Herr Hitler with a public ultimatum. I go further, and I say that if we had made an ultimatum in the days immediately before the Nuremberg speech, Europe would today have been plunged into a world war. The Honourable Gentleman, opposite, asked me specifically about Russia. He asked me why there was not closer consultation in these critical weeks with the government of the Soviet Republic. That government was under a treaty obligation similar to that of France, and dependent upon it to go to the assistance of Czechoslovakia in certain circumstances. The Russian guarantee was only to come into operation when the French guarantee was already operating. M. Litvinov indicated, indeed, he made a public declaration at Geneva on 21st September, that the Soviet government was ready to give all possible help if France came to the assistance of Czechoslovakia. As I have explained, that is all that Russia was under treaty bound to do. Her action would have been consequent upon that of France, and it was therefore natural that there should have been consultation, as in fact there was, between France and the Soviet Republic and His Majesty's government, in view of their different positions. We were content to let the French government take the lead in consulting with the Russian government, whose position was analogous to theirs. To say, as the honourable gentleman said, that the Soviet Republic was cold-shouldered is a complete exaggeration of the position. The Foreign Secretary had an exchange of views with the Soviet ambassador before the latter left, and at Geneva the British delegates maintained the contact. The Soviet ambassador was received again quite recently at the Foreign Office after his return to London. So much for the Honourable Member's question about our attitude towards the Soviet Republic. War has been averted. Has the price paid been too high? I frankly admit that Czechoslovakia has received a staggering blow. I say, with all deliberation, that when once Germany rearmed and became powerful, and when once the Anschluss took place, the strategic frontier of the Republic was turned. The Sudeten Germans looked to reunion with the Reich, honourable members, reunion, to union with the Reich. It was reunion with the German state. Union with the Reich was the ideal that they were determined to achieve. Further than that, we faced the fact that, owing to the geographical position of Czechoslovakia, it mattered not who might win or lose the war. Czechoslovakia would almost inevitably be destroyed. Further than that, we faced the fact that, owing to the geographical position of Czechoslovakia, it mattered not who might win or lose the war, Czechoslovakia would almost inevitably be destroyed. Some said it would be a matter of days, and others said a matter of weeks, but all were agreed, who had studied the strategic position, that it could not be a matter of more than a month or two. In the meanwhile, the Republic would have been destroyed. Immense slaughter would have taken place within its boundaries. Devastation would have run riot. Supposing that at the end of the war we emerged the victors, and I have always believed, as every member of this House believes, that in the final result we should emerge the victors, then we should be confronted with a position in which Czechoslovakia, as we know it today, would have been destroyed. And I do not believe that the negotiators of the peace treaty in any conditions would ever recreate its old frontiers. The right honourable gentleman, the leader of the opposition, in a picturesque passage, spoke of the Prime Minister as the captain who had saved the ship which his bad seamanship had driven almost onto the rocks. When the time comes for the verdict to be given upon the Prime Minister's conduct, let me tell the right honourable gentleman that none of us here fears 
that verdict. I believe that the criticisms to which we have listened in the House today very little represent the great body of feeling. I believe the great body of our fellow citizens not only in this country, but in the dominions and in the whole empire, are grateful to the Prime Minister for the efforts that he has made. They are grateful to the Prime Minister for having persistently sustained the policy of peace and mediation. They do not take the view that war is inevitable. They believe that under his wise guidance we may succeed in creating a new Europe in which men and women can go about their business in peace and security. Winston Churchill, House of Commons, October 5th, 1938 Having thus fortified myself by the example of others, I will proceed to emulate them. I will therefore begin by saying the most unpopular and almost unwelcome thing. I will begin by saying what everybody would like to ignore or forget, but which must nevertheless be stated, namely, that we have sustained a total and unmitigated defeat, and that France has suffered even more than we have. Viscountess Astor. Nonsense! Mr. Churchill. When the noble lady cries nonsense, she could not have heard the Chancellor at the Exchequer, Sir John Simon, admit in his illuminating and comprehensive speech just now, that Herr Hitler has gained in this particular leap forward in substance all he has set out to gain. The utmost my right honourable friend the Prime Minister has been able to secure, by all his immense exertions, by all the great efforts and mobilisation which took place in this country, and by all the anguish and strain through which we have passed in this country, the utmost he has been able to gain, honourable members, is peace. I thought I might be allowed to make that point in its due place, and I propose to deal with it. The utmost he has been able to gain for Czechoslovakia, and in the matters which were in dispute, has been that the German dictator, instead of snatching his victuals from the table, has been content to have them served to him course by course. The Chancellor of the Exchequer said it was the first time Herr Hitler has been made to retract, I think that was the word, in any degree. We really must not waste time, after all this long debate, upon the difference between the positions reached at Berchtesgaden, at Gottesburg, and at Munich. They can be very simply epitomized, if the House will permit me to vary the metaphor. One pound was demanded at the pistol's point. When it was given, two pounds were demanded at the pistol's point. Finally, the dictator consented to take one pound, seventeen shillings, and six pennies, and the rest in promise of goodwill for the future. Now I come to the point which was mentioned to me just now from some quarters of the house about the saving of peace. No one has been a more resolute and uncompromising struggler for peace than the Prime Minister. Everyone knows that. Never has there been such intense and undaunted determination to maintain and to secure peace. That is quite true. Nevertheless, I am not quite clear why there was so much danger of Great Britain or France being involved in a war with Germany at this juncture, if, in fact, they were ready all along to sacrifice Czechoslovakia. The terms which the Prime Minister brought back with him, I quite agree, at the last moment everything had gone off the rails and nothing but his intervention could have saved the peace, but I am talking of the events of the summer, could easily have been agreed, I believe, through the ordinary diplomatic channels at any time during the summer. 
and I will say this, that I believe the Czechs, left to themselves and told they were going to get no help from the Western powers, would have been able to make better terms than they have got. They could hardly have worse, after all this tremendous peteration. There can never be any absolute certainty that there will be a fight, if one side is determined that it will give way completely. When one reads the Munich terms, when one sees what is happening in Czechoslovakia from hour to hour, when one is sure, I will not say of parliamentary approval, but of parliamentary acquiescence, when the Chancellor of the Exchequer makes a speech which at any rate tries to put in a very powerful and persuasive manner the fact that, after all, it was inevitable and indeed righteous, right, when we saw all this, that everyone on this side of the House, including many members of the Conservative Party who are supposed to be vigilant and careful guardians of the national interests, it is quite clear that nothing vitally affecting us was at stake. It seems to me that one must ask, what was all the trouble and fuss about? We are asked to vote for this motion, which has been put upon the paper, and it is certainly a motion couched in very uncontroversial terms as, indeed, is the amendment moved from the opposition side. I cannot myself express my agreement with the steps which have been taken, and as the Chancellor of the Exchequer has put his side of the case with so much ability, I will attempt, if I may be permitted, to put the case from a different angle. I have always held the view that the maintenance of peace depends upon the accumulation of deterrence against the aggressor, coupled with a sincere effort to redress grievances. Herr Hitler's victory, like so many of the famous struggles that have governed the fate of the world, was won upon the narrowest of margins. After the seizure of Austria in March, we faced this problem in our debates. I ventured to appeal to the government to go a little further than the Prime Minister went, and to give a pledge that in conjunction with France and other powers they would guarantee the security of Czechoslovakia while the Sudeten-Deutsch question was being examined, either by a League of Nations Commission or some other impartial body. And I still believe that if this course had been followed, events would not have fallen into this disastrous state. I agree very much with my right honourable friend, the member for Sparkbrook, Mr. Amory, when he said on that occasion, I cannot remember his actual words, do one thing or the other. Either say you will disinterest yourself in the matter altogether, or take the step of giving a guarantee which will have the greatest chance of securing protection for that country. France and Great Britain together, especially if they had maintained a close contact with Russia, which certainly was not done, would have been able in those days, in the summer, when they had the prestige to influence many of the smaller states of Europe, and I believe they could have determined the attitude of Poland. Such a combination, prepared at a time when the German dictator was not deeply and irrevocably committed to his new adventure, would, I believe, have given strength to all those forces in Germany which resisted this departure, this new design. They were varying forces, those of a military character, which declared that Germany was not ready to undertake a world war. And all that mass of moderate opinion and popular opinion which dreaded war and some elements of which still have some influence upon the German government, such action would have given strength to all that intense desire for peace which the helpless German masses share with their British and French fellow men, and which, as we have been reminded, 
found a passionate and rarely permitted vent in the joyous manifestation with which the Prime Minister was acclaimed in Munich. All these forces, added to the other deterrents which combinations of powers, great and small, ready to stand firm upon the front of law and for the ordered remedy of grievances, would have formed, might well have been effective. Of course, you cannot say for certain that they would. Interruption. I try to argue fairly with the House. At the same time, I do not think it is fair to charge those who wish to see this course followed, and followed consistently and resolutely, with having wished for an immediate war. Between submission and immediate war, there was this third alternative, which gave a hope not only of peace, but of justice. It is quite true that such a policy, in order to succeed, demanded that Britain should declare straight out, and a long time beforehand, that she would, with others, join to defend Czechoslovakia against an unprovoked aggression. His Majesty's government refused to give that guarantee when it would have saved the situation. Yet in the end, they gave it when it was too late. And now, for the future, they renew it when they have not the slightest power to make it good. All is over. Silent. Mournful. Abandoned. Broken. Czechoslovakia recedes into the darkness. No one has a right to say that the plebiscite, which is to be taken in areas under sour conditions, and a clean cut of the fifty percent areas, that these two operations together amount in the slightest degree to a verdict of self-determination. It is a fraud and a farce to invoke that name. We, in this country, as in other liberal and democratic countries, have a perfect right to exalt the principle of self-determination, but it comes ill out of the mouths of those in totalitarian states who deny even the smallest element of toleration to every section and creed within their bounds. But however you put it, this particular block of land, this mass of human beings to be handed over, has never expressed the desire to go into Nazi rule. I do not believe that even now, if their opinion could be asked, they would exercise such an option. I venture to think that in future the Czechoslovak state cannot be maintained as an independent entity. You will find that in a period of time, which may be measured by years, but may be measured only by months, Czechoslovakia will be engulfed in the Nazi regime. Perhaps they may join it in despair or in revenge. At any rate, that story is over and told. But we cannot consider the abandonment and ruin of Czechoslovakia in the light only of what happened only last month. It is the most grievous consequence which we have yet experienced of what we have done, and of what we have left undone in the last five years. Five years of futile good intentions. Five years of eager search for the line of least resistance. Five years of uninterrupted retreat of British policy. Five years of neglect of our air defences. Those are the features which I stand here to declare and which marked an improvident stewardship for which Great Britain and France have dearly to pay. We have been reduced in those five years from a position of security so overwhelming and so unchallengeable that we never cared to think about it. 
we have been reduced from a position where the very word war was considered one which would be used only by persons qualifying for a lunatic asylum. We have been reduced from a position of safety and power, power to do good, power to be generous to a beaten foe, power to make terms with Germany, power to give her proper redress for her grievances, power to stop her arming if we chose, power to take any step in strength or mercy or justice which we thought right, reduced in five years from a position safe and unchallenged to where we stand now. We are in the presence of a disaster of the first magnitude which has befallen Great Britain and France. Do not let us blind ourselves to that. It must now be accepted that all the countries of Central and Eastern Europe will make the best terms they can with the triumphant Nazi power. The system of alliances in Central Europe upon which France has relied for her safety has been swept away, and I can see no means by which it can be reconstituted. The road down the Danube Valley to the Black Sea, the resources of corn and oil, the road which leads as far as Turkey, has been opened. In fact, if not in form, it seems to me, that all those countries of Middle Europe, all those Danubian countries will, one after another, be drawn into this vast system of power politics, not only power military politics, but power economic politics, radiating from Berlin, and I believe this can be achieved quite smoothly and swiftly, and will not necessarily entail the firing of a single shot. If you wish to survey the havoc of the foreign policy of Britain and France, Look at what is happening, and is recorded each day in the columns of the Times. We are talking about countries which are a long way off, and of which, as the Prime Minister might say, we know nothing. Interruption. The noble lady says that that very harmless illusion is, Viscountess Astor, rude, Mr. Churchill. She must very recently have been receiving her finishing course in manners. What will be the position of that Western Front, of which we are in full authority the guarantors? The German army at the present time is more numerous than that of France, though not nearly so matured or perfected. Next year it will grow much larger, and its maturity will be more complete. Relieved from all anxiety in the East, and having secured resources which will greatly diminish, if not entirely remove, the deterrent of a naval blockade, the rulers of Nazi Germany will have a free choice open to them in what direction they will turn their eyes. If the Nazi dictator should choose to look westward, as he may, bitterly will France and England regret the loss of that fine army of ancient Bohemia, which was estimated last week to require not fewer than thirty German divisions for its destruction. Can we blind ourselves to the great change which has taken place in the military situation, and to the dangers we have to meet? This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip, the first foretaste of a bitter cup, which will be proffered to us year by year, unless by a supreme recovery of moral health and martial vigour we arise again and take our stand for freedom, as in the olden time. Prime Minister Chamberlain, House of Commons, October 5th, 1938. As regards foreign policy, 
it seems to me that there are really only two possible alternatives. One of them is to base yourself upon the view that any sort of friendly relation, or possible relations, shall I say, with totalitarian states are impossible, that the assurances which have been given to me personally are worthless, that they have sinister designs, and that they are bent upon the domination of Europe and the gradual destruction of democracies. Of course, on that hypothesis, war has got to come, and that is the view, a perfectly intelligible view, of a certain number of honourable and right honourable gentlemen in this house. If that is honourable members' conviction, there is no future hope for civilization, or for any of the things that make life worth living. Does the experience of the Great War and of the years that followed it give us reasonable hope that if some new war started, that would end war any more than the last one did? No. I do not believe that war is inevitable. Someone put into my hand a remark made by the great Pitt about 1787, when he said, To suppose that any nation can be unalterably the enemy of another is weak and childish, and has its foundations neither in the experience of nations nor in the history of man. It seems to me that the strongest argument against the inevitability of war is to be found in something that everyone has recognized in every part of the house. That is, the universal aversion from war of the people, their hatred of the notion of starting to kill one another again. What is the alternative to this bleak and barren policy of the inevitability of war? In my view, it is that we should seek by all means in our power to avoid war by analyzing possible causes, by trying to remove them, by discussion, in a spirit of collaboration and goodwill. I cannot believe that such a program would be rejected by the people of this country, even if it does mean the establishment of personal contact with dictators, and of talks, man to man, on the basis that each, while maintaining his own ideas of the internal government of his country, is willing to allow that other systems may suit better other peoples. The party opposite surely have the same idea in mind, even if they put it in a different way. They want a world conference. Well, I have had some experience of conferences, and one thing I do feel certain of is that it is better to have no conference at all than a conference which is a failure. The corollary to that is that before you enter a conference, you must have laid out very clearly the lines on which you are going to proceed, if you are at least to have in front of you a reasonable prospect that you may obtain success. I am not saying that a conference would not have its place in due course, but I say it is no use to call a conference of the world, including those totalitarian powers, until you are sure that they are going to attend. And not only that they are going to attend, but they are going to attend with the intention of aiding you in the policy on which you have set your heart. I am told that the policy which I have tried to describe is inconsistent with the continuance, and much more inconsistent with the acceleration of our present program of arms. I am asked how I can reconcile an appeal to the country to support the continuance of this program with the words which I used when I came back from Munich the other day and spoke of my belief that we might have peace in our time. I hope honourable members will not be disposed to read into words used in a moment of some emotion after a long and exhausting day after I had driven through miles of excited, enthusiastic, cheering people. I hope they will not read into those words more than they were intended to convey. 
I do indeed believe that we may yet secure peace for our time, but I never meant to suggest that we should do that by disarmament until we can induce others to disarm too. Our past experience has shown us only too clearly that weakness in armed strength means weakness in diplomacy, and if we want to secure a lasting peace, I recognize that diplomacy cannot be effective unless the consciousness exists not here alone but elsewhere that behind the diplomacy is the strength to give effect. I cannot help feeling that if, after all, war had come upon us, the people of this country would have lost their spiritual faith altogether. As it turned out the other way, I think we have all seen something like a new spiritual revival, and I know that everywhere there is a strong desire among the people to record their readiness to serve their country, wherever or however their services could be most useful. I would like to take advantage of that strong feeling, if it is possible, and although I must frankly say that at this moment I do not myself clearly see my way to any particular scheme, yet I also want to say that I am ready to consider any suggestion that may be made to me in a very sympathetic spirit. Finally, I would like to repeat what my right honourable friend, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, said yesterday in his great speech. Our policy of appeasement does not mean that we are going to seek new friends at the expense of old ones, or indeed at the expense of any other nations at all. I do not think that at any time there has been a more complete identity of views between the French government and ourselves than there is at the present time. Their objective is the same as ours, to obtain the collaboration of all nations, not excluding the totalitarian states, in building up a lasting peace for Europe. That seems to me to be a policy which would answer my honourable friend's appeal, a policy which should command the support of all who believe in the power of human will to control human destiny. If we cannot here, this afternoon, emulate the patriotic unanimity of the French Chamber, this House can, by a decisive majority, show its approval of the government's determination to pursue it. The vote which followed supported the government 369 to 150. Chapter 97 Tom fell off the world after Munich. He hated his country. He felt a visceral loathing for the men who had betrayed England and Czechoslovakia in such a manner. He felt the sinewy soul of Reginald twisting around somewhere in the dank swamp of this treachery. He sat in his room, watching the crowd celebrating Chamberlain's ringing declaration that he had achieved peace for our time, and felt nothing but contempt for his fellow men. He sipped at some scotch because he had no reason to guard his health any longer. When he closed his eyes, he saw Jacqueline and breathed a prayer of thanks that he had not married her, that there were no children, only himself to mourn for. Death is at the helm of the ship of state, he thought, and wondered where the strength of the British race had gone to. These are not the men who built the first moral empire the world has ever known. These are cautious merchants, petty fools. Those who know nothing of evil should never be given power. 
They cannot be blind to what is so openly spoken, so openly acted upon. The Nazi lust for power. They see it, but they do not care. There is a weariness and vanity about their existence. They do not want to live, these appeasers, but they are too vain to die by their own hands. He thought about Reginald, about all the years that lay between them. What was it like to be him, to have no comfort at home, to be unloved by your offspring, to always have to be right, to bow and scrape and ingratiate yourselves to those in power, or those perceived as being in power, and threaten and scorn those who depend on you, Tom frowned. What would the years ahead look like from that arid, tense, terrified existence stretching forward? There was no escape from such a cage and closed in year by year. Tom touched his own chest. It was... It was inconceivable. No pleasure in life except to ingratiate and dominate. But what does such falsehood do to a soul? What does my brother live for? What gets him out of bed every morning? Why does he shave, put on a suit, go to work, pick up the telephone? What does he want? Tom shook his head slightly as if to dislodge or evade something. Power is the opposite of pleasure. A soul content with its own existence, simmering in the pleasures of love, family, and ethical life, close friends, does not need power, for it is complete in itself. When the soul dies, though, the need for power is what takes its place. Power-lust is the substance which flows into the vacuum of an amoral existence. But what power does my brother possess? He has helped in his way to bring down Czechoslovakia, but, but what does that mean? What has he accomplished? Nothing positive. Reginald has created nothing. But... He has destroyed something. The only existence is an absence. Tom's frown shifted into a scowl. Because Reginald does not exist. Nothing around Reginald can exist. He is a predatory virus of nothing. He finds what is and kills it. So he does not feel his own death, his own early, early death. Tom's thoughts were poised over the question of what killed my brother when a knock came at the door. He felt fixed to his chair and glanced at his little desk. Reginald had sent a letter, but Tom did not open it. He had already received a letter from Quentin which read, in part, 
Though the extent of your injuries to Wendy cannot be ascertained, and may be far less than she claims, since she is rather highly strung, it is nevertheless the responsibility of every man who aspires to the title of gentleman to avoid even the possibility of situations of this sort, where word wars with word and the truth can never come clean. To receive a sister-in-law at your flat, without a chaperone, when Reginald was doing his duty overseas, even with her children, which can be disposed of at any time, was the height of impropriety and foolishness. Were it not for your extensive history with ladies, I would be tempted to forgive you on grounds of naivete. Yet you are, in your own small way, a man of the world, and cannot fail to notice that Reginald and Wendy are going through a particularly rocky patch, and that entertaining her in your flat was just the sort of thing that would lead to a disaster of this sort. The only saving grace from this unholy mess comes, as usual, from Reginald himself, who acquitted himself with great honour and composure in Czechoslovakia, providing great assistance to HMG during this difficult time. He has received great acclaim in helping to fend off a clumsy German manoeuvre designed to discredit us in the international arena, and has achieved this singular honour despite being called by his wife with news of your, shall we say, indiscretion, the very day that his advice was being sought. All I can do is offer his self-restraint as an example to you. Tom twisted in his chair and glanced at the door. The knocking came again. Could it be Reginald or Quentin? <laughs> he almost laughed at the idea. The idea that either man would be courageous enough to come and thrash things out. They preferred the distance and safety of their poison pen letters. Reginald had sent one mail from Prague, which Tom had very much enjoyed, burning, unopened. The thought had struck him that he should go and tell Reginald the truth, that his wife had tried to seduce him, but shied away from the idea. It was hard to explain exactly why. Tom was not a coward, Reginald and Wendy's marriage seemed like an acidic quicksand that one could not just dip one's toe into. Recriminations, rage, all the back and forth of endless drama addicts. What would the point of that be? In the year or so that they all had left to live, if they were lucky, Reginald and Wendy would be unlikely to learn anything of real value. And... Of course, by betraying Czechoslovakia at Munich, Reginald had crossed over a line that admitted no return. Even if he realized what he had done, he would be unlikely to go and try pulling the Nazis back from the plunder of the new land. Tom put down his drink and tore himself from the chair as he heard the faint sounds of footsteps walking away from his door. A woman! Dear God! Let it not be, Jacqueline. I wouldn't have the strength. He tore open the door and saw his mother standing on the landing at the top of the stairs, her hand resting on the banister. She wore a gray cap and strands of her white hair lay against her cheek. She smiled. Tom frowned involuntarily. When she smiled, his mother's face grew entirely unexpected wrinkles. Were you sleeping? she asked. No, just thinking. Well, you don't want to pull your thinking cap so low that it covers your ears. He laughed silently. No. She waited for a moment, 
with great patience. Sorry, he said, returning to himself. Come in, come in. Thank you. Tom opened the door and let his mother in. She moved with a new grace, a delicacy, a, a femininity. Would you like some tea? Yes, yes, but let me bring it to you. Where do you keep everything? You drink scotch now? Just, just for today. You must tell me why you are sad. Tom nodded, then gestured at the low blue cupboards. I have only condensed cream, no sugar. I wasn't expecting guests. No, of course not. Matches? Tom pointed at a drawer and watched his mother light the little stove and fill the kettle. The tea was in a little tin. She found it without asking. He loved watching her make his tea. He wished he had something important to do so that she could bring it to him and kiss his head right where he parted his hair and then go back to doing other motherly things. I am making you sadder, she said without turning around. Tom nodded a little. I'm sorry. I owe you about 19,000 cups of tea. You took my advice. Ruth did not turn around. She poured the water into an old porcelain teapot with a cracked surface of red-cheeked children dancing with dogs. Good Lord, we have better things in storage. Why not take them? I never knew where they were, said Tom. Well, and I wouldn't have been of much use. You were a very... Patient child. Her voice caught. I don't know where I would have been without such a patient child with two of your brother. Gunther is back in the country, Churchill told me. She smiled, handing him his tea. Well, and we thought that Reginald was moving in elevated circles. I know. You should go and see him. What? All wrinkled? I don't think he loved you just for your skin, mother. Well, that's advice from the young and unmarried, so I don't have to listen to it. Tom smiled, blowing on his tea. She had put too much condensed cream into it, but he was too happy with maternal milk of any kind to complain. So, she said, sitting on the end of his squeaky bed, why so unhappy? Tom turned his chair around to face her. I have a question first. That's not quite answering a question with a question, but it's close. I am occasionally unhappy, so that can wait. Why are you so content? I... She paused. Why, I don't even know how to say it properly. I have exposed your father. How? Is, is that why he changed sides? He changed sides, my dear, because you told me to tell him to. I wanted him to see the light, not be bullied. He was... Partly responsible for the death of my brother Wesley in 1915, said Ruth, taking a sip of tea, her eyes never leaving her son's. How? He did not send them the weapons they needed for an assault. He forged documents to pretend that he never received them. And now Reginald is not giving Czechoslovakia the arms they need, said Tom instantly, unconsciously, before he even had time to assimilate his mother's words. Ruth's face betrayed no emotion. I have done what I could with that. 
He... Quentin did not change sides very convincingly. I know. I saw it. And you, nine rows down, with heart? Why didn't you say something then? We weren't speaking then. And now? <sighs> now, she said, dropping her eyes and stirring her tea rhythmically. Well, now I have made amends. I have won you back. I don't think that making him change sides did a lot of good. No. Oh, I was quite angry with him. I wrestled and wrestled because my wrestling muscles are not very strong. And then I decided, this morning, I do not love him. I did. I mean, I thought over it. Oh, it's been 30-odd years. And I remember that I did love him once. We were sitting by a fire shortly after he first got elected. I was responding to some correspondence. And he seemed tired, like an old bear, and sweet, somehow. And I loved him then. But he has a cruel streak. It makes my heart like ice. I can't thaw anymore, it seems. I can't forgive him. So I have destroyed him. Oh, I think he'll survive Ruth smiled humorlessly. Tom, please don't think I'm senile. I'm not talking about that. Then I sent his documents to the Times this morning. Tom leapt up from his chair. It went skidding back over the cheap linoleum. His mother's eyes followed him placidly. That wife, she said, is dead. Long funeral. Time to go. My God! Mother! he cried. He turned to the door, then turned back to her. This will not help! What? Why not? Because. Because someone who's changed sides will be revealed as a fraud and a moral bankrupt! Tom groaned from the pit of his being. Oh, Christ! Everyone will know the reason why he switched. Blackmail! Evident to all, because an MP would only join the anti appeasers if he were blackmailed, of course. Come to me first. Why didn't you come to me first, Tom? She said softly. She rose, took his hands, and kissed them. Tom, do you really think it makes a difference now? I mean, we're all just squaring accounts now, aren't we, in the time we have left? Tom's back was rigid for a moment longer, and then he sagged into his mother's arms. <sighs> yes, he said dully. Yes, of course. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. I'm glad. I'm glad. Oof, you're heavy, she said, sitting him on the bed. But this doesn't settle accounts, mother. Our family's involvement in war goes back further than Reginald and Quentin. Ruth looked down and interlocked her fingertips. What do you mean? She whispered finally. You're trying to solve something politically. You've been terrified of war since you were young. Now it's coming again. Everything we do just seems to bring it closer. Fighting against war brings it closer. <sighs> If you 
go almost to war, like to the very edge of war. There is no war. It's like a fear, face terror, and it vanishes. Accept war, and it scurries off. But you were our family's first involvement with war. Me? With Gunther. Before the Great War, you... <sighs> your betrayal. My betrayal of Gunther. No, mother. Of yourself. Of myself. Go back to Gunther, mother. Give him what's left of your heart. If it can thaw at all, it will be with him. Let us take what pleasure we may in the time that remains. Ruth's hands closed over Tom's. Her head lowered, but he could not tell if she were nodding slowly or just sagging, falling away into the past. Chapter 98 Gunther stepped off the train and sniffed deeply. He clapped his hands together, rubbed them vigorously, then walked up the platform. He felt like a wizard, a conjurer. The tests were working well, and soon all would be in place. No, not quite a conjurer. Today, he would be more than a conjurer. Today, he was a necromancer. Today, he would raise the dead. He had wanted to be very, very certain. He knew what it was to have his hopes dashed. He almost ran up the stairs. He knocked on the door. Tom opened it almost right away. Gunther! he cried. He had been weeping. Gunther did not pause. This was not unusual. He came through the door. He stood in the middle of the room, looking around. Tom, it's time. Stop drinking. You're no good at dissolution. This is the wrong environment. People who are really dissolute don't have calendars on the wall. How are you? asked Tom cautiously. Good. More than good. Wonderful. Today, the world is saved. I'm going to put that on your calendar. He whipped out a pen from his breast pocket. World is saved. When did you last fly? Coming back from Prague a few weeks ago. Why? Tell me, are you planning on flying again? I don't think so. Perhaps recreationally. Gunther turned and wagged a finger at him. But you do not ask me why I want to know. Well, that is bad. I have come not a moment too soon. Because I bring you hope. You must keep it a deep, dark secret. But I bring you hope. Hmm. He said, wrinkling his nose. You've had a woman here. I don't want to tell you here. Not here. Have you eaten? Some toast for lunch. Ha! We'll get you on rations soon enough. Come on. Let's go and really strap the feed bag on before everything becomes scarce. They went to a well-lit, highly fashionable restaurant with formal waiters, white linen tablecloths, and a soft jazz band. I toast our environment, grinned Gunther, raising a glass. It shall go for a time, but it shall return as well. <sighs> Stop hinting, said Tom. I don't have the energy. Oh, allow an old man a little play. <laughs> said Gunther, draining half his glass of wine. I have been waiting almost four years. Tom did not reply, but looked at him expectantly, dark circles hanging under his eyes like the hammocks of tiny devils. 
Tell me. Do you expect to fly in the war? To die in the sky or on the ground? replied Tom. I know. I want to die with my nieces. No. Nothing like that, said Gunther, leaning forward. You have to keep a secret. You have the head of Hitler in your briefcase? Uh, alas, no. But I have something almost as good. The flying time from France? Paris or the coast? The coast. Maybe a few miles inland. To London? Yes. Maybe half an hour? Time to rise from English soil to meet oncoming bombers. Unknowable. Why? They're seen from the coast, from spotters, I suppose, and you can only guess at their location. They would change course. It'd be impossible to find. Assume you can find them. Assume... Is this your secret? Just assume. I think... Fifteen minutes? Assuming there are bombers and not up to 20,000 feet? And they're only seen ten minutes away, yes? Yes. Yes, I think so. Waiter! More wine! Gunther leaned even closer. So that is the problem. We can't see them coming. We can't find them in the sky. And even if we do, they're already on their way back. But you can shoot down bombers if you find them. Tom shrugged. It'd be like hitting the side of a barn from twenty paces. So, Gunther had almost crawled halfway across the table. His eyes gleamed behind his horn-rimmed glasses. His broad forehead was bright with sweat. We can see them, he hissed. Tom's glass froze in midair. It hung motionless. The surface of the pale wine shivered. What? he whispered. We can see them coming. We can see them in the air. Gunther sat back into his chair. Cheers, he said, draining his glass. Tom's eyes narrowed. He felt himself starting to sweat. If you've broken the codes, he said, the cherries will just change them. It won't take long. We don't care about the codes, said Gunther merrily. He tore off a small chunk of bread and threw it at Tom's wine glass. The bread knocked over the glass, bouncing off. We do it with radio waves. The bombers will not always get through. We can see them coming, Tom. You can't. Hush. I've told you. Now I must kill you. We can defend our island. Tom stood, then sat down again. I want you to stop hinting, he said. It's very cruel. You didn't hint when you told me that war was coming. We set up radio stations along the coast. They're small, underground, almost impossible to bomb. They send out radio waves pointed at the sky. Whatever is flying will reflect those waves back to us. With no more than three, we can pinpoint bombers coming in from over France. We'll know where they are heading. We can send the Royal Air Force up to claw down the bombers before they reach their targets. We can target air-to-air -air through something called the Onboard Airborne Interception Radar Set. We put them in the Bristol Blenheim airplanes. We, we could even find German ships from the planes, Tom. Tom's hands twitched. Some will get through, but with a 20-minute warning, we can 
get most of them. There will be fighters, Messerschmitts, but we can send the Spitfires after those while the Hurricanes go for the bombers. Easy meat. There will be damage, of course, but... But... But we have a fucking good chance now, don't we? demanded Gunther. The waiter frowned at the obscenity as he wiped up the mess and poured more wine. Frown all you want, my good man, said Gunther, raising his glass, but we shall save your hide nonetheless. Their glasses clinked together. Now, said Gunther, I want you to stop mooning about like a lost little lamb. I want you to start exercising. I want you to stop drinking. I want you to give my good friend Colonel Donaldson a call and tell him that you want to join the Royal Air Force. This radio thing, radar, radar it's called, but you can't breathe a syllable. It's not just theoretical, it's not just on paper. I just came from the tests today. It works. Can it be, what, I don't know, jammed? Not as far as we can tell. And the Germans... Know nothing of this. The French? Gunther shook his head. Tom took a deep breath. Oh my God, what a day. First, my mother comes back to life. Then me? There was a pause. How is Ruth? I'll let you tell her that. But, Gunther... One thing. What? I don't want to train anymore. You've been flying for five years. You don't have to. I mean, train others. I've trained hundreds of pilots since 1934. I've done my part. I will not be stuck in a classroom. I want to fight. That's for the RAF to decide. No. No. I won't go if I can't fight. Gunther drummed his fingertips on the table. His gaze seemed to bore into Tom, into his son. And Tom could see that it was a father deciding now, not a scientist. (sighs) All right, Tom, he said finally. Your mother and I would be far happier with you in the skies. It was a heady day for Gunther. He had a long lunch with his son, then he drove out to Chartwell to tell Churchill of the good news about the radar tests. Then he went back home after a late supper. Climbing the stairs to his own flat, he saw a figure leaning against his door. A slim figure in a grey cap. Gunther took off his own hat automatically. As he approached, the figure raised her head. Gunther, croaked Ruth. I can't. I can't. And not fifteen streets away, a woman also came home to her empty flat. A man was lying across her doorway. She paused in the hallway, wondering whether to call the landlord or the police. The man raised his head. Hello, Jacqueline, smiled Tom. 